too few disciples. And so his response is to then call together the disciples and invite them to pray. If you remember from two weeks ago, he calls them together. He says, pray, pray for more disciples, for more harvesters to go out into the harvest field and pray over the harvest field even before you enter it. And, and so they do that. And then Jesus kind of turns to his disciples again as, as the answer, if not the exclusive answer to the prayer that they just prayed. So, okay, pray over the harvest field, pray for more disciples and more harvesters to go out and spark this kingdom movement. And then I almost imagine, it doesn't say this in the text, but I almost imagine them saying like, amen. And then Jesus kind of turning to them and saying, ah, look, like (laughs) here you are, like amazing. Like you're ready to now go and, and be the answer to that prayer. And so he, he turns to them, he sends them out, which is a new thing. And in the passage we studied last week, he sends them out with kind of commissioning and, and direction. And this was the basic structure, if you were here uh, last week. He, he says, be in relationship with me, uh, share in my authority, uh, preach the inbreaking kingdom of God, and, and demonstrate the kingdom through action. In other words, do the type of things that I've been doing in the, in, in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Do what I've been doing. Find the people who are open to the kingdom and stay with them, or or in our language, invest in them. Bring them along in the discipleship journey. And rely on the Holy Spirit for the words to speak and for daily provision along the way. And I wanted to take a second to just recap the last two weeks, because for the disciples, all of this would have been one fluid experience. Jesus recognizes the need for harvesters, so to speak. He calls the disciples and and equips them to to then go out and do the type of stuff that he does. And now, this morning, as part of the same speech, he's going to explain to his disciples what they should expect as a result of their kingdom activity. We pick up in chapter 10, verse 21. It says this, It says, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you were persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called uh, Bezebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Let's pray. Jesus, um, as we hear your words, uh, thousands of years removed from the original audience, would you bring them to life for us this morning? Um, Would you um, speak to us as clearly as you spoke to them? And and would all of this actually be um, deeply shaping to the way that we view the world and the harvest field and the life that you call us to? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so looking back over the last few weeks, we see Jesus uh, turn to his disciples and he says, all right, so the people, they they are harassed and helpless. They they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And and so the disciples are being sent out because there's a harvest to be had. There's a kingdom movement to be sparked. Proclaim this message, Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Humanity seems to have a great need for this message and experience. The kingdom of heaven, it turns out, is the very thing that we have been starving for. As if the desire for it were buried deep in our DNA. I mean, this is something that every human being longs to experience. Nothing else will truly satisfy. This is the message that brings about our liberation. And yet, Jesus warns his disciples that humanity will be curiously resistant to this message. I am sending you out like a sheep among wolves, Jesus tells them. And what they should expect from their preaching of the gospel is controversy. Brother will betray brother to death, Jesus says. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their own parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. And so the disciples are are to carry into the world the most beautiful message that it has ever heard. And they should expect to be hated along the way. That's odd. And yet, this seems to be exactly how the movement of Jesus has played out over time. I did not come to bring peace, Jesus says, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Well, that's rude. I mean, what's he saying? Like, why? And, And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the gospel carries with it an element of social disruption. And nowhere would that have been more controversial than in the very cultures in which the gospel movement started. We, we have to understand, every time we pick up the scriptures, we're reading something that is for us. The, the scriptures are God's authoritative words for humanity for all time. And yet in the same breath, we have to recognize that we're, that we're reading something that was not written to us. Do, do you see the difference? In, in that the scriptures are for us, but they were actually written to a different people, in a different culture, in a different time period, in a different continent. And so the message of the scriptures is just as relevant today as it has ever been. And yet the language of the scriptures sometimes requires some additional unpacking because we weren't the original audience. And one of the major cultural differences is that we live in a culture of individualism, which can be characterized predominantly as a guilt-innocence culture. So what that means is that in complete isolation from others, I am either guilty or I am innocent. And and of course, I want to uh, be innocent. But the cultures into which Jesus is speaking and which he's sending the first disciples are what we would characterize as honor-shame societies. And and I want us to grasp the difference between the two. In honor-shame cultures, people rely on external sanctions of good behavior from the community around them. Whereas in guilt-innocent cultures like ours, uh, they're relying on an internalized uh, conviction of sin. So so in cultures like ours, which are the guilt-innocents, parents typically teach their children the difference between right and wrong, and they expect their children to internalize that and to allow that internalized code to then guide them throughout their lifetimes. In contrast... In shame-based cultures, they rely heavily on public opinion, on outward appearances, and on group pressure to enforce norms. So so in honor-shame cultures, uh, there's a fear of of psychological or physical rejection by the community, a a lack of belonging or, or abandonment or expulsion from the community is among the worst things that could happen, a losing face or, or reputation. And, and all of that, you'll recognize, is driven by, by external pressures outside of yourself. Uh, shame is not an individual feeling. In fact, you cannot experience shame outside of community, outside of that context. So, for example, uh, my friend Daniel, uh, he grew up as um, the, the son of missionaries in uh, Albania. And Albania is an honor-shame culture. And he said the difference is that, that in an honor-shame culture, if you do something wrong and nobody finds out about it, 
then it doesn't really matter. But if the community does find out about it, then you're, you're ruined. Because it, it will affect your, your honorable standing in the community. Public opinion is everything. But, but I want us to start this morning by seeing what a big deal this was for the original recipients of the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament contains uh, 10 different words occurring nearly 300 times conveying different aspects of the word shame. That's a lot. And, and as you move into the New Testament, uh, shame is mentioned 45 times versus just 10 uh, mentions of the word guilt. So shame was actually more important to these people and to these cultures. And, and if we only view the world uh, through the lens of guilt and innocence, as our cultures kind of trained us to do, then there's actually a lot going on in the scriptures that we won't understand. We won't fully understand the scriptures, and, and we won't fully understand the cross without some understanding of honor and shame. And, and because much of the world still operates in this sort of uh, honor-shame context, we actually have lots of examples of how this plays out over time. And so some of the, the classic examples in my mind are, are come out of Asia. Um, or even just focus on Japan as an example. And you think of kind of our understanding of like samurai culture, right? And if you're a samurai or if you're Tom Cruise and you hang out with them, then, then you, and you lose a battle, right? Then it's kind of expected that you would take your own life. Why? Be because of the shame. You bear this cultural shame and the only way to clear the shame is to do that. And, and in fact, it wasn't that long ago that in Japan, you could go and borrow money against your good name. Like, that was how you secured a loan. It, you said, imagine walking into a bank and saying, I need to borrow $50,000, and I promise on my name that I'll pay it back. And, and the social pressure of maintaining a good and, and honorable name is what would drive you to repay that loan on time. In effect, you were saying, if I don't repay this loan in the time that I've promised, I give my community permission to laugh at me. And, and our cultural context is so different that most Americans would say, yeah, laugh at me. I'll take the 50 grand. <laughs> like, what do I care? But in their culture, if you failed to pay back the loan in time, then your name and your honor would be ruined. And again, the cultural expectation would be that you should take your own life, in large part to cleanse the family name of the shame that you've brought upon it. And there are modern-day examples as well. Um, I think of uh, the story of the U.S. Marines who um, captured the Korean island uh, of Kangwa Do. And uh, as they captured it, they captured this remnant of soldiers um, that didn't die in the fighting. And, and as they were kind of rounding up these soldiers, the soldiers started, the Korean soldiers started committing suicide in front of their eyes. And some of the, 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 the captured soldiers ran to the Marines and threw themselves down in front of them and said, please take our lives. And the Marines are stunned. They're thinking, what are these people doing? Like, like go, go home. And they're saying, no. We cannot go home because the only thing waiting for us at home 
is shame. And that is worse than death for us. To return to the community and to be shamed and excluded from that community is worse than death in their eyes. In fact, this continues to play out around the world um, in many of these cultures. And every year, uh, there are hundreds or even thousands of what we would call honor killings, which is where families kill other members of their own families in order to maintain the family's honor. So as one example, it, it is not uncommon in, middle, in many Middle Eastern countries for a brother to put his sister to death because her, her sexual immorality was brought into the public gaze and brought shame upon the family. And the only way to free that family of shame is to then take her life. And in most cases, the governments in these countries do not prosecute the crime because they understand the importance of honor and clearing the family name in full public view. And I know that's difficult for us to understand. But in many of these cultures, even today, honor and shame can mean everything. And in these cultures, your conduct is guided and your identity is formed, not by some internalized code, but by the community at large. They are so dependent on the community for their own identity, that to be rejected by that community is this sort of emotional and psychological death. It's as if they cease to exist. It, it, it's, it's this group mentality that actually helps form their self-image and becomes the basis or the foundation for, for their psychological existence. But notice that in these uh, honor-shame cultures, the one thing that you don't want to do is disrupt the status quo. Unity is everything. To be isolated from your community uh, through stigma or shame was the ultimate punishment. To, to be shamed in that way was paramount to death. It, it was a social death of sorts, and often a physical death would follow. In Western society, we are all about individual achievement. The goal is to stand out. In, in these honor-shame cultures, the goal is to blend in. We value independence. They value interdependence. Do you see the difference between the two? It's this group thinking, interdependent mentality. So when Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me, there's this collective gasp from the audience. On another occasion, Jesus says it this way. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, such a person cannot be my disciple." And to be clear, what he means in context is if you aren't willing to forsake your family for my sake, you can't be my disciple. If obedience to the family 
is going to take precedence over obedience to me, you cannot follow me. And, and, and this stuff is stunning because Jesus is threatening the very fabric of their society. Social unity was so important in their culture that, that within a household, everyone in the household would profess the same uh, re- religion or the same spiritual beliefs, whatever they were, the household was expected to act in unity as one collective interdependent organism. And so for one person within a household to forsake the religion and spiritual beliefs of, of the entire household, especially of those superior to them, I mean, that's, that's treason. That, that's this source of disunity. It's actually a source of shame in, in the public eyes because there's this group mentality, uh, which is why when you're reading through the scriptures, in the book of Acts in particular, you run into these examples of, um, of entire households giving their lives to Jesus and being baptized at the same time. There's, there's an example um, with a, a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius hears the gospel and comes to believe, and then it says something like, you know, Cornelius and his entire household were baptized. And we read this, through our our modern Western lens, and we say, no, 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 no. No. That means that his wife and his children and his servants and his employees actually had no choice? I mean, are they all slaves to the will of Cornelius? That as the head of the household, he just told them all to convert, and they had to convert? Is that even genuine conversion? I mean, are, are they even saved? When in reality... What's happening in these situations is that they're having a group experience as this interdependent organism. And and so they're all hearing the gospel together. They're all feeling pulled to it together. They're processing it together because that's how life is done. And then all feeling called to respond. And so the head of the household leads that process forward. And, And they do it. And these communal decisions... Uh, are, are actually beautiful success stories in the scriptures. And they are encouraged in the New Testament for the exact reason that it minimizes social disruption and avoids the accusation that one person has brought shame on the rest of the family. Unity it, it was that important. And so even today, when we look worldwide, the good news of the cross is actually received as bad news in many places because it comes with with a social upheaval and and disruption that that, that has to come with some people accepting the message. And Jesus warns his disciples about it. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Why? Why? Because the gospel will cause social disruption and and shame in in a society that values honor and solidarity and blending in. If you were here last week, Ian mentioned that persecution of Christians worldwide has been at an all-time high over the course of the last century. Something like 40 million put to death for their faith. And and ironically, church growth has also been at an all-time high. But the reality is that one Christian is martyred or put to death every minute. And I don't have the stats, 
But I think that we would be shocked at the percentage of those martyrs who were turned over or put to death by their own family and friends, by those closest to them. Why? Because they sense that the social disruption that this causes in an honor-shame society. And it was into that world that Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to, to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. And if I'm in the crowd, in that moment, I'm probably already thinking, crucify him. Because he is threatening the very fabric of the society that I live in, and he's threatening to rip it apart. Why does he say this? Because that's the only way the gospel moves forward. It's the only way forward. He's saying that the world has aligned itself in solidarity, in unity, in opposition to the living God. And I'm about to stir the pot. I'm about to kick over the hornet's nest, so to speak. And as people give their lives to me, it's going, it's going to be beautiful, but it's going to rock the boat too. And, and every time someone gives their life to me, it, it's going to be perceived as a threat to someone else's worldview. And it could be atheism, and it could be Islam, and it could be apathy, but it will be perceived as a threat. And the people who don't yet know me are not going to like this. And because we don't live in that same honor-shame society that they did, we don't feel the full weight of his words, right? What we hear is, okay, I can't follow Jesus unless I hate my father and my mother. Check. <laughs> Got that one. My parents are lame. Okay, like I, I can't follow Jesus without causing social upheaval. Awesome. Sign me up. Are you saying that following Jesus is going to make my non-believing parents uncomfortable? Fantastic. I can't wait for Thanksgiving dinner. Like, this, this is how we think as Americans. We, we don't think in those same terms, and so we aren't shocked by Jesus' words. Social disruption in our culture won't result in our shame or our banishment or execution. It's, it's more likely to result in more Instagram followers. I mean, we, it helps us stand out. And in our culture, that's praiseworthy. But even outside of the honor-shame context, Jesus' words are still going to shock us. Because right after the verses that we just read, he goes on to say this. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life or values their life above my call will lose it. And, and, and whoever loses their life for my sake will, will find it. And notice that in the honor-shame cultures into which he's speaking, 
He's already said these words using alternative language. To the original audience, these sentences don't introduce anything new to the conversation because in their eyes, he's already called them to take up their cross. He's already called them to, to lay down their lives. He, he's, he's already called them to forsake honor and family and status and security and reputation and social position, all of it. They've already been asked to sacrifice that in an honor-shame culture. In their eyes, he hasn't introduced anything new. But in our eyes, these verses come out of left field. All of a sudden, Jesus has like turned this corner and, and, and now we feel the weight of what he's getting at. I mean, as an American, I'm down for, for social disruption. You want to threaten group solidarity and the supremacy of the family? No problem, Jesus. I mean, we, we've already dismantled it in our culture. That's no threat at all. But if you threaten the supremacy of the individual, well, now you stirred up the hornet's nest. Now we're up in, I mean, set my own life aside? Pick, pick up my cross? Like, I mean, this is where things turn bitter for us. Because in a culture of individualism, me and my desires and my life and, and my plans are already the most important thing on earth. Uh, of course, they, they're more important than what my family thinks. I mean, forget those guys. I, I, I have to become my own person. And, and it's all about me and my life and my plans and my self-actualization and my pleasure. And then Jesus says, actually, you need to die to yourself in, in order to be fully alive to me in, in, in the life that I call you to. And, and this is where we're tempted to walk away. Jesus says, be more devoted to me than you are to your family. And, and we say, sure, it's too easy because I'm not devoted to them. And then Jesus says, hey, be more devoted to me than you are to yourself. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, hold on, Jesus. Now you're talking crazy. My family is lame. But check me out. I'm awesome. <laughs> but, but what is Jesus saying? He's saying if your own pleasure-seeking conflicts with discipleship to me. Forsake it. Pick up your cross. You'll find true freedom here. If pleasing your parents conflicts with me, politely inform your parents that you have chosen to be my disciple. If allegiance to your nation actively conflicts with discipleship to me, th then gently inform the zealously patriotic that you have to part ways at that point. I mean, have I offended anyone yet? Because what Jesus is saying is subversive and, and it's offensive. And, and, and I think we need to hear it that way. He, he's saying, hey, come follow me and give me the last word. Not family, not, not yourself. I get the last word. Because if mom or dad or pleasure 
or patriotism or peer pressure or the fear of death takes priority over being my disciple, then your discipleship will never be what it should. Who has the last word? And don't think for a moment that because we aren't in an honor-shame society that we won't face social pressure. Because in all reality, no culture is purely honor-shame or purely innocence. They just lean to one side or the other. And so most, if not all of us, can identify with our own deeply ingrained fears of being excluded. Most of us feel the threat of emotional and psychological pain that comes with being rejected and stigmatized and misunderstood. In fact, I think if you look at high school and middle school culture, what you see is a lot of honor-shame. What, what you see is people saying, I will do whatever it takes to, to fit in and be accepted. I cannot be ostracized. I, I, I cannot risk isolation. Hey, drink this, smoke that, take a hit of this, sleep with her, fine. If that's what gains me acceptance, I will do it. I can't afford to lose face. I, I can't afford to lose social standing. And in fact, many in those age groups who are shamed into isolation contemplate or even attempt suicide. I, that, that's samurai stuff. That, that, that's, that's honor shame. And, and they're feeling that shame. I, I think we have a lot more of that going on than we realize. And, and we too can easily be held captive to the collective wishes of the culture instead of Jesus of Nazareth. We are far too easily enslaved by what they think or threaten. And acknowledging Jesus before others is not getting any easier in, in our nation. Either because it's naive in, in an age of skepticism or because it's closed-minded in, in an age of acceptance or because it's concrete in an age of relativism. Surely your faith must be ungrounded. Surely you must be naive. Surely you must be homophobic. Surely you must be closed-minded. Surely you cannot tell me what is true and untrue because all truth is relative and I get to make mine up. Social pressure is very much alive and increasing in America. Public embarrassment is not foreign to us. And we can still be completely held hostage by what the culture thinks or, or the perceived sense of shame that we feel in, in classrooms or, or social circles. We, we can be just as eager to fit in and, and yet more and more of us can identify these times and places where representing Jesus makes your cheeks flush red and, and, and your heart beat faster. In a post-Christian culture, denying Jesus before others is going to be an increasing temptation because it will save you face and social standing and social positioning and reputation and friends. Selling out is going to become more common, not less. And, and the social cost of following Jesus is increasing, not decreasing. 
And yet, what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid. And instantly it becomes clear that that one of the things that Jesus frees us from is the slave master of public opinion and peer pressure. Don't be afraid of those people, he says. The worst they can do is kill you. And I'm the one who will raise you up again. You have nothing left to fear. Don't be afraid, because in the end, everything that has been secret will be made known. They'd like to stigmatize you and look down on you and tell you that you're naive and that you're foolish and apply social pressure in an attempt to get you to conform. And in the end, when all the cards are down on the table, they'll see that the exact opposite was actually true. That you were right and they were wrong and the shame is theirs and not yours. Don't be afraid. You will be hated because of me, Jesus says. I was hated, you will be too. I was accused of being in league with Satan, of threatening to tear down everything that society wanted to stand for, as perceived as a threat to their way of life. You will too. But guess what? In all of that, in the difficulty, in the resistance, in the shame, in the gossiping, in the social rejection, I'm with you. And you're in the Father's care. And you're walking in His will. He loves the birds of the air and you're worth way more than the birds. And there's going to be times when you're in that tension and the circumstances will suggest to you that you're not in the Father's care. The circumstances will suggest to you that you're cursed. The circumstances will suggest to you that, that you're no longer walking in his will. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite is true. He says, I will never leave you. I, I will never forsake you. In fact, if someone gives you so much as a cup of water, they're actually giving it to me. How's that for mysticism? We are so deeply and intimately connected that what they think they're doing for you, they're actually doing for me. Don't let the resistance of the world cause you to question the care of your heavenly Father. I know there's tension because the world is united in rebellion against him and social upheaval is the inevitable way forward as the gospel continues to spread. And guess what? In the midst of that, he knows how many hairs are on your head. You're not forgotten You're not cursed. In fact, you are blessed. You are walking in the will of God as disciples of Jesus always have. And despite stubborn human resistance, the gospel keeps on advancing. And as it does, it rocks the boat. It it, it upsets the status quo. It, It challenges our selfishness. It it upsets the equilibrium. It it, it offends our relativism. And it deeply frustrates those who wish so badly that it were not true. Don't be afraid. Go, Jesus says, preach the inbreaking kingdom of God, heal the sick, raise the dead, love the unlovable, comfort the afflicted. What God has given freely to you, grace, hope, 
love, a future, identity, the Holy Spirit, knowledge of who He is. Yeah, all of that stuff, give it freely to others. Even the ones who call themselves your enemy, give it freely to them without cost. There is a harvest to be had. And and as a follower of Jesus, you and I are called to move forward in the face of cultural tension, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is with us and we have nothing left to fear. Let's pray. You can go ahead and um, clear off your lap if you want to. And I'll invite the worship team back up. Uh, But before we enter worship together, um, what I want us to do is just take a few moments and listen. And and there's two questions uh, that I think the text uh, forces us to wrestle with this morning. And so I, I want us to just sit in these for a moment. And the first is this. In what ways... Is God calling me to be free from the opinions of others? Free from peer pressure, from stigma, from fear of isolation, embarrassment, shame. I mean, where are those things holding me back? And finally, God, in what ways are you calling me to be free of myself? Because this is where things hit home in our culture. I was reading the story of a famous missionary um, who spent years of his life practicing the presence of God. And he said, I aim to be utterly free of everything, even free of myself, so that I can be completely alive to Christ. And in a culture of individualism, For some of us, this is the final frontier. This is the greatest freedom that we have yet to achieve. And so throughout history, Jesus has invited his followers to experience freedom in both of these ways. Freedom from public opinion and freedom from ourselves. And yet so often I sit in bondage to both of them. So what we're going to do this morning is just invite God to answer these questions for us, uh, each one of us as individuals. We're going to take some time to just sit and listen and allow God to speak. God, where am I being held hostage by the opinions of others? And where have I elevated myself over your call? I'll pray and then we'll listen.